It has been one year since the last time it was January 20th, and this time around, many things are different. Does anything ever stay exactly the same? That is not a question directly before us on this installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement, a constantly changing compendium of challenges, choices, and charged chatter. I'm your host, Sean Tubbs, and in this edition, Charlottesville City Council approves two housing projects intended for those with lower incomes on Park Street. Scottsville Town Council defers a vote on two cluster developments within town limits. A new brief is filed in a lawsuit seeking a House of Delegates election in 2022. And an update from the Virginia General Assembly. Let's begin today with two more Patreon-fueled shoutouts. The first comes from a longtime supporter who wants you to know, today is a great day to spread good cheer, reach out to an old friend, compliment a stranger, or pause for a moment of gratitude to savor a delight. And this is where I wish my mother a happy birthday. The second comes from a more recent supporter who wants you to go out and read a local news story written by a local journalist, whether that be the Daily Progress, Seville Weekly, Charlottesville Tomorrow, WINA, The Crozet Gazette, CBS 19, NBC 29, or some other place I haven't mentioned, the community depends on a network of people writing about the community. Go learn about this place today. Today, the number of new COVID-19 cases increased over yesterday, but the 7-day percent positivity has declined once again. There are 14,803 new cases reported today by the Virginia Department of Health, and the percent positivity is at 31.6%. The number of hospitalizations is currently at 3,868 patients, with 635 of them in intensive care units and 388 on ventilators. The Blue Ridge Health District reports another 512 new cases today, and the percent positivity is at 26%. Just before publication, Governor Glenn Youngkin announced a limited state of emergency in Executive Order 11 that is related to the pandemic. This is similar to one enacted earlier this month by former Governor Ralph Northam, which provides flexibility to health care providers related to staffing. This will expire on February 21st. Read the order to get all of the details on the 18 provisions within. A new motion was filed this week in the federal lawsuit seeking the Virginia Board of Elections to hold a new election this November for all 100 seats in the House of Delegates. Richmond attorney Paul Goldman filed the suit last year in the Eastern District of Virginia, arguing that the current boundaries are invalid because they are based on 2010 census data. Goldman also sought a temporary injunction to stop the board in November from certifying the 2021 election results in the House of Delegates because they would be sat for a period of two years. That motion was denied. Goldman appealed, and this week he filed a brief in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals that applies the same legal arguments that led the Eastern District Court in 1981 to order House of Delegates elections that year for a one-year term with a new election in 1982. Here's a summary from the argument. The failure of the federal government to timely provide 2020 U.S. Census data created delays in the Virginia reapportionment process. But this federal failure does not provide a constitutional free pass for state officials to arbitrarily decide to violate the appellee's constitutionally protected voting rights. 
Goldman argues the districts in place last November violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment because some districts had many more voters than others because the reapportionment had not yet happened. He's asking the three-judge panel to take up the case. In late December, the Supreme Court of Virginia approved maps drawn by two special masters. Meanwhile, the work of the General Assembly continues, with 1.4% of the 2,078 bills filed so far listed as failing. At least, that was the case as of 8 a.m. this morning. All but one of them are in the Senate. One such bill from Senator Bill Stanley, a Republican from the 20th District, would have required a mandatory minimum of life imprisonment for a Class 1 felony. It was passed by indefinitely in the Judiciary Committee on a party-line vote of 8-7. to seven. A bill from Senator Ghazala Hashmi would have allowed credentialed newspersons to cross police lines, perimeters, and barricades. Hashmi asked for it to be stricken. Senator Amanda Chase, a Republican from the 11th District, has a bill that would have prohibited any discrimination of people based on vaccination status. That one failed to report from the General Laws and Technology Committee on a party-line vote. A second bill from Chase would have prevented any discrimination against people who don't want to wear a mask. That one was passed by indefinitely by an 8-6 to six vote, with Senator Shabon Donovan, a Republican from the 12th District, not casting a vote. A bill from Senator Jeremy McPike, a Democrat from the 29th District, would have required smoke detectors in all new residential units, equipped with a battery that can last for 10 years. The request was stricken at McPike's request. A bill from Senator Jill Vogel would have added a sixth member to the Board of Elections and extend their terms to six years. SB 610 would also have required photo identification to vote and require registrars to audit the voter rolls more frequently. The bill was stricken at Vogel's request in the Privileges and Elections Committee. One piece of legislation already has been continued to 2023. Senate Bill 59 from Senator Travis Hackworth, a Republican from the 38th District, would require the police chief in a dissolved city to relinquish records over to the sheriff of the county that would take over authority of the jurisdiction. But it's not all failure. Forty House joint resolutions have passed the House of Delegates, as well as four House resolutions. Most of these are organizational or commendations for various individuals and organizations across Virginia. You can view the full list of past bills here on the Legislative Information System. Governor Glenn Youngkin has selected a top official of the Heritage Foundation to serve as his Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. Angela Saylor is the vice president of the Fulner Institute, a wing of heritage. Youngkin also signed Executive Order No. 10, which elevates Saylor to his cabinet as the chief diversity, opportunity, and inclusion officer. The word equity was dropped. Here's a section from the order. We acknowledge that too many of our citizens have not received the equal opportunity they deserve, and we recognize that diversity, when genuinely embraced, strengthens our commonwealth. The order also establishes that Saylor will be responsive to the rights of parents in educational and curricular decision-making. You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and it's time for another Patreon-fueled shout-out. This past Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and the Albemarle Charlottesville Historical Society heard from their newest board member at a meeting, and now you can catch up with the whole event on YouTube. There's a link in the newsletter where you can see Gail Jessup White, 
She's the first public relations and community engagement officer for Monticello, and the first descendant of Thomas Jefferson and the enslaved community to work for the Thomas Jefferson Foundation. Gail Jessup White talked about her book, Reclamation, Sally Hemings, Thomas Jefferson, and a descendant search for her family's lasting legacy. The recording is available on YouTube, and you can learn more about the Historical Society at albemarohistory.org. Two housing projects today, one in Scottsville, one in Charlottesville. Let's start with Charlottesville. Charlottesville City Council has given final approval to two separate rezoning requests for new housing projects on Park Street in Charlottesville, just north of the US 250 bypass. At Council's first meeting of this year, they reached consensus to place rezoning of land at the Park Street Christian Church on the consent agenda for the January 18th meeting. But the rezoning of the Monticello Area Community Action Alliance property was further discussed on January 18th. Dannon O'Connell is a city planner. The proposed PUD development um, calls for preservation of two existing single-family homes, 28 new townhome or duplex units, 65 multifamily units in two buildings, and a maximum of 7,500 square feet of commercial childcare space. The land use designations for both properties were changed in the 2021 future land use map to allow more density. Nearby resident John Hasek argued that data supplied by the developer was faulty and a new sample should be taken. The traffic analysis was based off data collected in June 2021, middle of COVID, middle of summer, and outside of school and university term time. This is really significant because this would potentially, you know, sink the project or at least justify a reduction in scale, which is really what the community is looking for. Traffic engineer Brennan Duncan acknowledged that the traffic study may have been affected by COVID, but defended its use. Um, but the applicant was on a, a pretty strict timeline to get all of their stuff submitted. Um, and so I did say that if they were going to do it um, and they wanted to move forward with that, they would have to do the um, correction factor. Duncan said the applicant was asked to compare their traffic study with a previous one conducted for a previous rezoning for the MACA property and to traffic counts from the Virginia Department of Transportation. Both of uh, the traffic studies that have been done um, do fall in line with the, the VDOT um, estimates um, for the Park Street. So I am confident in both the, the VDOT estimate and with um, the numbers that came through. Duncan acknowledged that traffic would increase in the area above the average of 10,000 vehicles that use it today. That's still down from the more than 20,000 vehicles a day that were using the roadway before the John Warner Parkway opened. The theoretical maximum is around 18,000 vehicles per day. Um, and that's at the point where you, you start seeing pretty severe traffic backups during peak hours. Duncan also acknowledged that there are site-distant issues with the existing entrance, but that the development will meet the minimum requirement with a new intersection that will align Maca Drive with Davis Avenue. I have worked with the applicant to achieve what I believe to be the safest intersection that we can hope for given the topography of the area. Duncan said he would be requesting a left-hand turn lane onto Maca Drive from Northbound Park when the project goes through the site plan approval. Charlottesville Mayor Lloyd Snook said he has had a concern about the existing MACA site for years and that the existing conditions with site distance are not good. And it just seems to me that the 
the changes that will be coming to eliminate a lot of those uh, obstacles uh, are, are going to make life a lot easier. Whether whether that has anything to do with the accident rate, I don't I don't know. Snook said a Charlottesville with more residential density will mean development on what he called more problematic parcels. And one of the things that we've got to do as councilors and planning commissioners and city planners and so on is to recognize, is, is to attempt to recognize when the problem is something that is manageable versus when it is not manageable. Snook said in this case, the problems are manageable. He added, council will be called on to manage those problems. Councillor Michael Payne said he walked through the site and also acknowledged the problems. He gave some insight into how he made his decision. The heuristic I use is just if a development is appropriate and safe, is what I feel comfortable explaining to every family who could have lived there the reasons I voted no. And likewise, what I feel comfortable explaining to every individual who lives in the neighborhood why I voted yes. And in this case, the trade-offs to me um, seems clear that the benefit for at least 76 families who will have access to affordable rentals and homeownerships is worth it. The vote was unanimous. Meanwhile, in Scottsville, the town council on Tuesday night took up two special use permits to allow for additional residential density for projects on Bird Street and Blenheim Road. The Blenheim Heights project would see 24 houses on 9 acres, and the Bird Street project would be 48 houses on 12 acres. Both take advantage of provisions in an updated zoning code that allow for clustered development. Before the meeting, the town put on three informational meetings at which the details were given. The public hearing opened without a presentation from the applicant. Several speakers asked for the town council to deny the request. One of them was Kim Schmidt who moved to Scottsville in 1995. Schmidt said she wanted to see what the by-right development would have looked like. Another speaker mentioned a petition calling for responsible development, and she asked for this to be entered into the record. There are a total of 299 signatures from the paper and online petition. This petition shows that there are many people who want development, and that's what the petition said. We want development, but we want responsible growth, commensurate with the size of our town. Others were supportive. Thomas Unsworth lives on Bird Street, and he supported a project that would give him new neighbors. And I cannot stress how excited I am to see it happen. The historic downtown area is already a dense settlement that encourages people to get out and walk to enjoy local amenities like the library, parks, farmer's market, and the many businesses we have. Building new housing in this part of town is the perfect way to allow Scottsville to grow without putting an undue stress on the parking and traffic situations downtown. However, Unsworth said he did not support the Blenheim Heights project because it is a cul-de-sac, more common in suburban development. The majority of speakers asked for a denial or more time to come up with conditions. When the matter came before the town council, Scottsville Mayor Ron Smith suggested taking time for a vote later. And technically, we could vote on this right now. But with all that information that came out of this weekend's meeting, I feel like the town councilors need to have a special session to discuss all that information before they make a vote. The items will return to town council for a vote on February 22nd, with a special work session on the items to be scheduled between now and then. 
And that is it for this installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement for January 20th, 2022. Again, happy birthday to my mother, who I'm certain doesn't even know what a podcast is. And that's okay, because uh, maybe if I put this on Facebook, she will see it. I don't know. But if you know my mother, send her a note wishing her a happy birthday. I am Sean Tubbs, the uh, son of Phyllis Tubbs, and I am here uh, to bring you this information as often as I can. And I'm going to cut this one short at the end today just to say though that if you would like to support the program do visit infocville.com and click on the support the info tab Uh, really hoping i can get some more subscribers before the end of the month so i can continue to plot out a future where i keep doing this again and again and again this is episode 317 which is march 17th saint patrick's day how many will i have done by then Thanks for listening, stay safe out there, and thanks for listening.